Our text today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, and verses 31 through the end of the chapter, 59. And Jesus is talking to a specific group of people, but I invite us all to ask where we see ourselves in this conversation and to ask the Lord to help us hear what he might be saying to us. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, Whoever obeys my word will never see death. 
At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Michelle. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, if you don't know me. And I'm one of the pastors here. And one of the members of this church. And it's a real joy. You've heard this a couple different ways this morning. It is a real joy to be a member of this church. And it's a real joy to be part of, of leading this church. And so I'm, I'm really glad to be here this morning. Glad you made it out in the cold to be here. And we get to open God's word together. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 8 here in a few minutes. And beginning a new series today in the I Am Sayings of Jesus. And I'm really excited about that. And uh, I just want to give you a little preview of where we're headed this whole year. Uh, the last couple of years, we have spent a lot of time intentionally working through the practices of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus does. We spent a lot of time focused on what it looks like to follow Jesus and become like him. And we've always rooted that in the, in the person and work of Jesus. Because if you believe the gospel, then you're going to obey what Jesus says. And as we started looking at this year coming up and started to ask the Spirit, like, where should we go in our sermon series? We decided to focus intentionally this year, more intentionally perhaps than we've done in a little while, on the person and work of Jesus. And we're still going to talk about the practices. We're still going to talk about following Jesus and obeying Jesus, because that is the outflow, the overflow of believing the good news of Jesus, of believing what Jesus has done and who he is. But we're going we're gonna to take this year to intentionally focus on the person and work of Jesus. And so we're going to start with Jesus himself in the I am saints of Jesus because the gospel always begins with a person. It always begins with who Jesus is. And then we're going to do a, a really slow walk through Romans 8, which is all about the implications of the gospel for our past, for our present, for our future. So we're going to spend like 10, 11 weeks in Romans chapter 8, that one chapter. And then in the fall, we're going to go to the book of Exodus, which is a story of redemption that points to the big story of redemption. So I'm, I'm really excited about where we're headed 
this year that we get to kind of do a deep dive into the good news of Jesus in these three ways. And, and what I want to invite you to do, and especially for this series that we're, we're starting today, is to ask the Spirit to help you rediscover the beauty of Jesus, to rediscover the beauty of Jesus. I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this and the longing of my heart as we enter familiar territory for a lot of us. A lot of us have heard the I am sayings of Jesus. And there's always this danger as we enter into familiar territory that we miss what the spirit might have for us. And so I wanna invite you to rediscover the beauty of Jesus with me. And as I thought about that idea of rediscovering, I, I thought of the movie Encanto Something you may not know about me is I hate watching the same movies twice, unless they're really good. Like when Amanda says, hey, let's watch this Christmas movie. I'm like, hey, we watched it last year. Like, why do we want to watch it this year? So unless the movie's really good, I hate to watch, I don't really like to watch it more than once. But my kids, and kids will do this, have taught me the joy of watching a movie over and over and over and over again. And as you watch movies that you've seen before, you start, if you pay attention and you press in a little bit, you start to discover things that you didn't see the first or second or third time you watched the movie. So, so for example, in Encanto, if you've seen it, have you noticed how many butterflies are in that movie? Look, all, look at all the butterflies on Mirabelle's dress. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's okay. It'll still make sense in the end. All the butterflies on Mirabelle's dress and the butterflies are everywhere in this movie. At this next scene, you can see them built into the architecture of the house behind Louisa. There's, in the latticework, there are butterflies. They're in the magic candle, around the magic candle. They're flying around Mirabelle when she confronts her grandmother and then comforts her. And then at the end of the movie, there's this explosion of butterflies. And the movie's all about this family being transformed. This family being changed, metamorphosing from this dysfunctional family and through the influence of Mirabelle into a more functional family. And so you see all this symbolism that you didn't see before. And I know a couple years ago I preached a sermon in Ephesians that was kind of on Encanto. I'm not going to do that this today. Don't worry. Don't worry. The point is simply this, that if you, if you press into things that you've seen before, that you've heard before and you're patient, and you keep your eyes open, and this is abundantly more true with Jesus than it is with Encanto, you're gonna see things that you didn't see before. You're gonna see beauty that you perhaps didn't notice before. And so I, I wanna invite you to ask the Spirit to do that. And I just wanna pause for a minute, and let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit to do that today and in this series. Jesus, you are, you are so beautiful. You are more than can be described with our words. And you often confuse us. You're mysterious. You're holy. You're other. You're transcendent. And we, we just want to know more of you, want to see you, maybe in ways that we've never seen before, or maybe in old ways that we still haven't figured out how to live out in our lives. So will you do that today for us? 
and in this whole series. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to get to John 8 in just a minute, but I want to think about, I want us to go to the end of John first in John chapter 20, and just be reminded of why John wrote this book. Like, why did he sit down and write this gospel? And he tells us in John chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John writes this book, the signs, the miracles of Jesus, as well as the explanation of those miracles, which includes the I am statements. He writes these so that we believe, so that we would believe, and that as we believe, we receive life. Now, if you if you think about that deeply, that's a pretty radical claim. That by believing someone, we get life. And so it means that as we press into what Jesus is saying and the I am statements of Jesus, Jesus desires not to condemn us, it's not to shame us, to discourage us, to confuse us. His desire is that your faith would grow. His desire is that you would experience life through what you hear. And this, this radical promise of life, we're, we're going to start in John chapter 8 because Jesus makes an even more radical statement to back up his promise of life in John chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 58 and kind of work our way backwards. Jesus says to this crowd of people gathered around him, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And so this exchange that Jesus has with these religious leaders, I believe it's written for, for three reasons at least. And this is where we're going to go today. It's, it's written, number one, so that Jesus, we will believe Jesus' announcement of who he is. That's what he's calling us to. And if we believe who he is, then what's going to follow is we're going to be called to believe Jesus' assessment of our hearts. And as we believe what Jesus says about who we are, we're called to believe Jesus' assurance to rescue us. So that's where we're headed this morning. So number one, Jesus calls us to believe his announcement of who he is. Again, verse 58 says, Very truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, to understand why Jesus' hearers are so upset, why, why do they take up stones to stone Jesus, we have to understand a little bit of the context of John, and then we have to go even bigger and understand the context of the Old Testament. So we've got to do a little work here. We're going to do a little study. So tap into your inner Bible nerd and, and ride with me a little bit in this study because it'll be worth it, Okay. So when you, when you start the Gospel of John, it seems that John very intentionally, I think stylistically, uses this phrase, I am, over and over again. John the Baptist uses it negatively to start the book. John, John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. Same phrase, except with the not. I am not the Christ. He says, I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. I am not 
worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. I am not the Christ. So you read the first part of John, you get a lot of I am nots. I am not, I am not, I am not. And then in John chapter 4, you see Jesus for the first time publicly. He appears, he shows up at a well, and he starts talking not to a Jew, but to a Samaritan. Not to a man who's among the religious elite, but to a woman. Not to someone who's known to be righteous, but to someone who's known to be an adulterer. And this Samaritan woman says that when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything we need to know. And Jesus looks at her and says, I am. I am. I am the Messiah. And then Jesus public ministry begins to, take off, begins to take off. People start to hear about his miracles and what he's done. And in John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 and he declares, I am the bread of life. Same phrase, I am, and then the bread of life. And then the, the chatter begins to grow. Like, who is this person? Who is this person that can multiply bread? Who is this person who claims to be the bread of life? And in John chapter 8, we find Jesus has entered Jerusalem in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he meets a really divided crowd. Some of them believe him, and there's lots of people who don't. Some of them want to follow him, and some of them want to kill him. And in chapter 8, he's right in the middle of this interrogation by the religious leaders. The religious leaders are saying, hey, you've caused quite the ruckus. Who are you? Like, who do you claim to be? Who do you think you are? And so Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And they say, you can't just say that. You have to have a, test a testimony of someone else. You have to have a witness who agrees with you. And Jesus says, I do, the father. The father, which blows their mind even more. Like, well, who's your father then? And so Jesus makes it pretty clear. He says, I'm from above. You're from beneath, I'm from above. And he says in verse 24, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And they're confused still. And they say, well, who are you? And Jesus says in verse 27, when you've lifted up the son of man, the crucifixion he's talking about, you will know that I am. Still they're confused, some believe on a surface level at least, but they don't completely get what Jesus is saying. So Jesus goes really deep and he starts to say some pretty hard things. You heard them read a few moments ago. And he says, if God were really your father, you'd hear my words because he's my father. And then he says, if you were really descendants of Abraham, not just physically, but spiritually, then you would do what Abraham does and did, which is rejoice in who I am. And they're exasperated. And finally, in verse 53, they say, who do you think you are? And Jesus tells them, let me tell you. Let me tell you really clearly who I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that helps understand why they took up stones to stone him. But we need a little bit more help from the Old Testament to understand how crazy this was, how radical this statement was. The first time the I am statement occurs in the Bible is in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. He says, hey Moses, I've chosen you 
to be the redeemer, the rescuer, the deliverer of my people. So Moses is talking with God and he says, well, I have a problem. If I go tell them I'm the rescuer, who am I going to tell them sent me? Like, what is your name? And so God says to Abraham or to Moses rather in chapter three, verse 14, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. But then God continues and tells Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, which is the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Just a little hint in your English Bibles, when you read Lord in capital letters, that is Yahweh. When you read Lord Lord in lowercase letters, that is Elohim. And so when God says here, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, he's saying, my name is Yahweh. And Yahweh, the Lord, and I am, they're connected. They're essentially the same word. So if you throw up that slide, yeah, you got it, great. What we think is happening, like some scholars think, is that God's helping Moses out. Because Moses is going to the people and saying, I am has sent me. And that sounds a little confusing. So God says, no, instead go and say, he is, or he will be, has sent you. That's the name Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh. So eh, yeah, is the first person for I am, or I will be. Yahweh is second person. He is, or he will be. So it's the, it's the same word. And this becomes the preeminent name by which God reveals himself to his people. He says, hey, you you get this name to call me. No one else gets to call me by this name. You get to call me Yahweh. I'm your deliverer. I'm your rescuer. And this is my name. And God is saying so much by giving himself that name for his people. At the very least, he's saying three things. He's saying he's self-existent. He simply is. He has no origin because he has eternally existed and he will always exist. He is the uncreated creator. He's the I am. He always is who he always will be. And because of that, he's self-sufficient. He's completely independent. He doesn't need me or you or anyone else to make him complete or happy. He is fully complete and sufficient in himself. And that also means that he is supremely dependable. God will always be what he always has been. And this name, Yahweh, was so revered, so deemed as holy by the Jewish people that when they would read through the Old Testament scriptures, they'd get to the name Yahweh and they would not say Yahweh, they would say instead Adonai. It was such a holy and revered name that when the Jewish scribes copied manuscripts, they would get to the name Yahweh, they would wash their pen, go take a bath themselves, come back and write the name and continue writing. Now, when there's 6,500 references in the Old Testament to Yahweh, that was quite the process. But that's how much they esteem this name. God alone gets this name. So to come back to the text in John 8, when Jesus says, I am, they immediately responded, 
by saying this is blasphemy. That's the punishment for blasphemy, taking up stones to stone Jesus. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, I am God. I am Yahweh. I'm part the partaker of the same nature as the Father. I'm self-existent. I'm self-sufficient. I'm dependable. I am your redeemer. And if what Jesus said was not true, it was one of the greatest forms of blasphemy that could have ever been spoken. And so the Jewish people in this day were faced with a choice. Who, who is this person? And they, they couldn't walk away. I, I want you to notice this. It's important in our day, especially. They couldn't walk away and say, he's a great teacher. He's a great teacher, but I just don't think he's the son of God. Like they didn't have that option. He's either a lunatic, he's either insane, or he is the Lord. C.S. Lewis very famously said in Mere Christianity, people often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he has a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So here, here's the challenge that I want to leave with you before we go to the second point and third point. They'll be shorter, I promise. Here, here's the challenge. First, if you're, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you have doubts and you're trying to discover who Jesus is, I want to say two things to you. First, we want this to be a really safe place for, for you to be able to do that where you can ask hard questions, where you can wrestle with who Jesus is. But at the same time, I wanna give you a gentle warning that as you look at the words of Jesus, as you spend enough time with Jesus and listening to what he says about himself, there are going to be these moments like there is in John chapter eight, where he's gonna call you sometimes strongly, sometimes gently, he's gonna call you to get off the fence. The late Tim Keller commenting on this passage says, Jesus basically says, crown me or kill me. I'm either the Lord or I'm demonic. You must either, you can either make me the center of your life or you must hate me and do everything you possibly can to have nothing to do with me and to stamp out my very memory. But anything in the middle is a lack of intellectual integrity. And so Jesus is gonna call you to pay attention to what he said, not what people say about him, not, may, not what you always heard about him, but he's gonna call you to say, just listen to me. Just listen to what my words, to what, what I say about myself. Jesus, you tell me who you are. I'm listening. And that's the challenge for all of us, no matter where you are in your, your walk with Jesus, because we all do this. We, we all create caricatures of who Jesus is. We all create ideas of who we think Jesus is that seep into the way that we live. We all have versions of Jesus that 
crop up from the time to time that aren't truly what he is and who he says he is. Like some of us have versions of Jesus who's really, who are, he's, when, who's really gracious with us, a Jesus who is really kind to us, but not so gracious to people who don't have the same faults that we do. Like some of us have a version of Jesus who is full of judgment, full of condemnation, full of rebuke, but who has no or little comfort and mercy and kindness. Or on the other, or on the other hand, some of us have a version of Jesus who will never rebuke or challenge or confront or grieve over our sin, but who just rolls along in life with a plastic smile on his face. And what Jesus is calling all of us to do is say all over again, except in a very respectful way, who do you think you are? Who do you say you are? I wanna hear Jesus, your words. I wanna hear who you say that you are. And what will happen as we have this posture of Jesus, tell us, tell me who you are, is Jesus is gonna call us then to believe his assessment of our own hearts. As we discover who Jesus is, he's gonna show us who we are. And if we believe that Jesus is Yahweh, the self-existent eternal one, we're, we have to believe that he actually knows our hearts better than we do. He knows our hearts better than anyone else knows them. And so his assessment, his analysis of our hearts is always going to be right. And as we read this passage, we read a lot of, of hard words, read a lot of hard re- words. And one of the reasons that John records this is to show us that Jesus is really persistent. He really wants us to see who we are so that we can embrace who he is. Listen to to how Jesus assesses their hearts, and then we're going to talk about what this means for us. Verse 23, he says, you are of this world. And then he says, if you don't believe me, you will die in your sins. Verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Verse 43, you are unable to hear what I say. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out his desires. Verse 47, you do not belong to God. Verse 55, you do not know God. These are hard words. And I I want to remind you, and we've said this lots of times, that the tone of Jesus' voice is always dependent on the condition of the hearer's hearts. When you look at John chapter three, Jesus is having this very kind, compassionate conversation with Nicodemus, agrees to meet him at night, agrees to meet him at secret and to challenge him with with really kind words, but still challenging words. In John chapter four, he meets a Samaritan woman, woman with a great deal of compassion for her condition. But here in John chapter eight, we have a group of religious people attempting to kill Jesus who are stuck in their religious ways and trusting in in their religion to rescue them. And Jesus is trying to shake them out of that. He's trying to jolt them out of that false security that they have. And so when Jesus tells them that they're slaves to sin, immediately they say, we're we're children of Abraham, like we're free. And they're not talking about physical freedom because they were slaves in Egypt. 
They're talking about spiritual freedom. They're saying, hey, we're the good guys. We're the ones who follow Abraham. We're the ones who follow the law. If you want to talk about slaves, talk about the people who are enslaved to sin and immorality. Talk about those people. And Jesus looks at them and says, your slavery is just as bad because you have a relationship to God that is completely dependent on whether or not you do the right thing. And that is slavery. And he gives, them, he gives them this analogy between a son and a servant. He's talking about a Roman household. And he says there's a lot of similarities between a servant and a son. Servants and sons both get fed by the father. Servants and sons both live in the house. But the main difference is the servant's relationship with the master of the house is always dependent on what he does. He could get fired, let go at any time. The son's relationship is dependent on the unconditional love of the father. And Jesus says, that's what I'm offering you because you are enslaved to your religion. And no matter what our relationship to Jesus is, what's still true is that we can't fully embrace what Jesus offers us until we embrace the neediness of our own heart. Until we say with Jesus, what you say about us is right. And maybe this analogy is, is helpful. Jesus uses it himself. He calls himself a physician, right? And when you go to a physician, you can tell him your symptoms. You can tell him what's happening. But you don't say, and here's how you're going to treat me. Like, here's, here's the diagnosis of my problem and what to do to fix it. No, the, the physician, the doctor, that's his job. It's his job to say, I'm going to look and diagnose you and tell you exactly what's wrong with you and then give you a cure that fits. And Jesus is really good at his job. Like he's a really good doctor. He knows the deepest needs of your heart. Unlike anyone else, his diagnosis is never wrong. And what's beautiful is he never gives you the prognosis that it's terminal. He never says there's no hope. He tells you, this is the prognosis, this is the diagnosis, and I can help you. I have the cure for the needs of your heart. And this brings us to this last truth that Jesus calls us to believe his assurance to rescue us. There's a lot of hard things in this passage, but mixed with them is hope, always. Jesus always mix, mixes hope with hard things. L listen to what he says in verse 24. He's, he implies, if you believe me, you will not die in your sin. That's the implication of the reverse that he states. And then verse 32, he says it explicitly. The truth will set you free. And then in verse 36, he says, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And in verse 52, he says, whoever obeys my word will never taste death. And at the heart of this news that Jesus is bringing is this invitation to not be slaves anymore, but to be sons and daughters. And what Jesus is saying is I'm offering you deliverance from slavery, both to immorality and to religion. I'm offering you something completely different, something completely new. And the good news of, the, of, of Jesus is that he invites us into a relationship that is not dependent on how well we perform and what we do, but on what Jesus has already 
done. And as you continue reading the New Testament, you find that is the message of the cross of Jesus. He takes all of our sin, all of our condemnation, and God gives us all of his righteousness. And having been declared not guilty, he doesn't say you're free to go. He says, you're free to come home. I want to adopt you into my family. And what is so crazy is that in this passage, Jesus is offering this to his enemies, the people trying to kill him. As I was thinking about that, I was remembering a story. Martin Luther King was given a speech once in Birmingham, Alabama, and this 24-year-old white man, Roy James, member of the KKK, jumps on the stage and starts pummeling Dr. King. And Dr. King doesn't step back. He doesn't run away. He actually embraces the man and starts to hug him really tightly. And his bodyguards are coming to help, and he actually protects this man from what the bodyguards are going to do to him. And he just keeps holding him. And then the crowd begins to sing. They actually begin to sing songs. And the man begins to cry because he realizes that his hatred was met with, with love and this, in a much greater way, is what Jesus is doing. This crowd wants to kill him, and he wants to hug them. He wants to embrace them. He wants to give them life and freedom. And because Jesus is the I am, and because his assessment of our hearts is right and true, his promises, they, they carry weight. They carry meaning. When Jesus offers us forgiveness, it only carries weight if he's the I am. If, if someone comes up and hits me in the face and Chewy goes to that person and says, hey, you're forgiven. That doesn't work, right? Because he wasn't the one who got hit. And so when, when Jesus says your sins against God are forgiven, he's saying something and everyone knew what he was saying. He's saying, I'm God. I have the power and authority to forgive sins because your sins are against me, who is God. And so Jesus' offer of forgiveness, it actually has weight. The cross has meaning. If Jesus is not God, then the cross is a gross form of child abuse, of the father abusing the son. But if Jesus is God, it is an act of self-sacrifice. It is God the Son and God the Father and God the Spirit in agreement from all eternity working out this plan of redemption and Jesus sacrificing himself in our behalf. Everything falls or stands on whether or not Jesus is the I am. And so what I want to do is, uh, Brandon, can you throw up that slide with all the I am's on it? I'm going to let you look at that. And then I want to, I want to end by circling back to Exodus chapter three. And I won't, I won't read this, but Moses, after he hears who God is, he starts to ask questions about whether he has what he needs to deliver the people of Israel. He starts questioning, who am I? Like, who am I to do this huge task? Like, do I have what I need to do this? And God tells him, I'm going to go with you. The I am goes with us. And so no matter what our needs are, no matter the depths of our needs, whatever they are, the assurance that we get from Jesus saying, I'm the I am, is that he always will be what he always has been. 
And so he is still, that's why we named the series I Am Still Is. We wanted to overemphasize this reality that all who Jesus says he is, he still is. He still is the good shepherd. And he's with you. He still is the bread of life. And he's with you. He still is the vine. And he's with you. And so my encouragement to you, my challenge to you as we, as we go into this series is, is to ask. When we come to, for example, I am the light of the world, to say, Jesus, will you, will you show me all over again what that means? Will you help me listen to what you're saying about yourself? And, and will you show me what that means about my own heart that I am lost and will walk around confused without the light of the world, and, and because you're the I am and you haven't changed, will you give me light? And as we come to each of these, I wanna encourage you to ask those questions. Jesus, who are you? What does this I am statement say about my own heart? And what does it say about your complete and utter willingness to meet me in my needs? I'm gonna go ahead and invite the, the worship team up. And we're gonna, we're gonna respond in a couple ways. If you, have a, if you have a notepad or a note app, you could pull it out for a couple minutes and maybe helpful. I'll just guide you through a couple ways. I encourage you to take this with you and spend a, a longer time, maybe in your DNA, your MC, or, your, or on your own. But we'll just spend a, a couple of minutes and reflecting on these three things. And uh, let, let me just invite you to go ahead and, and close your eyes and have a posture of prayer. And in, in your own words, in your own words, to pray, to pray this. Jesus, help me discover or rediscover who you really are. Help me let you speak for yourself. Strip away my false views of you. Remove my caricatures that I've made of you. Help me to discover or rediscover something new or something old. So take a few minutes and pray in your own words. And as, as you're praying, if there... If there's something about the way Jesus has revealed himself that's, that's confusing or troubling to you, or if there's something about who Jesus is that you really want to press into in this season, just take a few minutes and, and write that down. Ask the Spirit to show you, who, who, what about you, Jesus, do I, do I need to press into and ask questions about, discover, And let me just invite you to pray uh, again in your own words. Jesus, will you show me the deeper needs of my heart in this season? Jesus, what do I really need? It's a good thing to pray as you pray, as you ask for things to, 
to ask, what, what do I really need, Jesus? Jesus, save me from skimming the surface of my heart, but show me um, how deep my need really is. And as you show me, give me hope. Help me to hear hard things if I need to hear them. Again, let me invite you to, as you're praying, if something comes to mind about the needs of your heart, to write that down. This is what I need. This is what I think I need. Jesus, shape that, deepen it, clarify it. Finally, will you, Jesus, help me to embrace your promises like never before to meet the needs of my heart? Again, I invite you to pray in your own words. Um, Jesus, help me see the depth of your willingness to meet me in my need. Help me abandon my self-sufficiency. Help me to be comfortable staying in a posture of neediness. Help me to be okay continually receiving from you. Just continue to pray. Maybe write down a few words of those prayers that you can come back to. Jesus, continue to show us who you are. Show us who we are and what we need from you and deepen our faith and conviction that you are the I am. You always will be what you always have been. And so what we need, you are able to meet way beyond our expectations.